Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian as we reread the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, we're getting just towards the end of The Wine Dark Sea. Can you catch us up a little bit, please, sir? I certainly can with great pleasure. Last time, Stephen and Sam Panda had taken the girls, the Sweeting Girls, to their first mass. Stephen's local agent in Callao, Gayongos, had updated him on the independent situation there in Peru and set up some introductions. Jack had discovered, meanwhile, that Dutour has gone missing, had set off in the launch to find him. And as that chapter closed there, we had this grim situation with them running out of food, unable, along with the crew of the launch there, to get into shore, and a big storm blowing not only the launch, but also the Franklin out to sea. And that time, of course, Mike, you and I were together, together in Miami. Sorry to everybody we didn't get a photo of that occasion. But now this week, I can tell you that Mike are, are back in our places on opposite sides of the Atlantic. And as we sit here, we're looking forward to this chapter in which a plan comes together quickly for Stephen. Uh, he therefore is feeling unusually confident. And meanwhile, we get introduced to the Knights of Malta, to some mountain journeys, to a wonderful mule and some amazing oil birds. We encounter a dreaded interloper, irascible animals and an unexpected development, and we're off again. So, Mike, lots of twists and turns this week. and It, it seems like this is going to be a bit of a Stephen-focused chapter, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. You know, we open this chapter, and I'm thinking, okay, I want to turn the page and find out what happened to Jack. But, you know, we're not there yet. We're not there no. yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What we open with is, as you say, it is Stephen. And, and O'Brien's telling us about his incredible power of recollection that had been honed by years of learning as a child. O'Brien points out that he memorized the entire Aeneid, which allows him now to compose his semi-official report, which he's writing to Sir Joseph completely in his head using their private code, which he's also memorized. You know, leaving no potentially dangerous papers behind. We've seen that in prior books, how intercepting those first drafts and then the encoded pieces and everything is, has yeah. done in some of his enemies there. So, you know, Stephen not falling into that. And, you know, I've got to admit, I've, I've never read Virgil's epic. I, I had no idea that it's a 12-volume poem. And so this, yeah. this idea of learning this by heart, you know, kills me. Now, I do remember that Stephen knows it by heart because during his delirium in HSS Surprise, he recited it in its entirety. <laughs> I remember Jack right. had gotten you know, a, a little tired of that, but just wanted Stephen to pull through here. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of questioning here, is this O'Brien telling us about one of Stephen's unique talents that makes him a really good intelligence agent? Or is he reminding us that in this epic, Aeneas is, is leading his troops home after the destruction of Troy, and he encounters all these strange creatures along the way. He has to overcome devious schemes of gods and goddesses. He has to battle strong enemies to fulfill his destiny. Are we now kind of getting signaled that there are going to be similar challenges yeah. ahead for Stephen, maybe for others? Jack, what's going on, Jack? But I also kind of remember reading about this that Virgil's kind of giving us this moral lesson in the India that, yeah. that we have to persevere not only against opposition from without, but also against ourselves and our own failures. And I'm thinking, oh, 
ooh, now this yeah. might be a little subtle moral, a little subtle. Here's what's going on, ladies and gentlemen. Pay attention. We've certainly seen Jack fighting this battle throughout the canon and Stephen as well with some of his things. So maybe, you know, maybe this is yeah. it's not for nothing. O'Brien throws these things in here, right? It's really not. I mean, it's it's his sort of signature go-to classical Latin text. We've had quotes from the Aeneid all the way back, even before HMS Surprise. Uh, in post-captain, we had Mad Cousin Lounds or Downs, was it? I can't remember. Right. In Dover, yeah. the, the, the teapot guy quoting the opening line of the Aeneid, of, of Arms and the Man I Sing. O'Brien likes to keep taking us back there. And I like the fact that it's got these two things. It's got the Jack Aubrey, you know, the, the stories of Aeneas and Achilles and the, the martial characteristics of, of of guys like Jack Aubrey. And it's got this introspective side of human nature and who we are, which sounds like Stephen, Stephen Maturin like, would, would absolutely know this by heart. <sighs> Very cool. Very cool. So, and again, as, as often with Stephen, we're in introspective mode and we're in diary writing on letter writing mode. So the note that Stephen's writing to Sir Joseph Blaine begins, God between us and evil, my dear Joseph. And this is a really classic Irish or Irish sounding little self-blessing that Stephen often uses when he's kind of calling on uh, uh, on providence to protect him. Maybe a little bit like Jack touching a belaying pin. I don't know. But and anyhow, with God between him and evil, he goes on and says, I, I believe I can report an uncommonly promising beginning an uncommonly promising situation with things moving at an extraordinary dreamlike speed. I might not for the first time again. We sort of question Stephen's perspective and self-knowledge here because we're pretty sure that in the previous chapter he got briefing to tell him that things had changed dramatically for the worse and that independence was a much stronger prospect in Chile than it was in Peru. So hmm, we might have to come back to this. Why is he so optimistic? Why is he willing to write to Sir Joseph in this way? Meanwhile, he reports in this letter that he'd met General Hurtado, a former Knight of Malta, and we'll come back to those in a second, um, and discovered that he and General Hurtado had several common friends in the Order of the Knights of Malta. This particular general, we learn, favors independence because he'd been snubbed, or rather the, the, the present viceroy and his predecessors seemed to him to be trifling ill-bred upstarts, and he's had all these personal affronts. General Hurtado is strongly opposed to slavery, which it puts him on the same side as Gayongos and Stephen and Sam Panda. Um, Stephen suspects that this hatred of slavery might come from the general's time on the galley ships of the Knights of Malta. So he also shares Stephen's attachment to the idea of the, the this, this scheme for settling liberated slaves in Sierra Leone, for taking Africans back to Africa. And last but not least, unlike most people in his position, as you might suspect, uh, he's actually quite poor, which suggests we've got this honourable uh, sort of ascetic side to General Hurtado's character. So we're feeling pretty good about having General Hurtado as an ally. Um, Mike, what do we think about the Knights of Malta? This is always fascinating stuff to me. They're not the Templar <laughs> Knights. I think, you know, a lot of people, oh, oh, Knights, Templars. No, no. This yeah. is another order, the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem or the Knights Hospitaller. So it, it started as a Catholic order of monks and caretakers who treated the sick in Jerusalem during the Crusades. And, and these guys from a lot of what I've read and seen, they started things like each sick person has their own bed. They're not kind of thrown in together. They did washing. They did some things that, you know, they had a great rate of, of recovery here where other people had much higher mortality rates. 
And, you know, they, they're treating so well that the crusaders are carrying their wounded way back across the countryside to the hospital. And some of these caregivers, some of these monks go, well, wait a minute, you know, we need to be closer to the front with you. So the idea came, why don't we train as knights as well as medical helpers? So yeah. they're both helping the sick and the poor. They're defending the crusaders, actually treating the crusaders, but they are defending the Christians in the Holy Lands. Now, in why the Knights of Malta? It's all Jerusalem primarily. Well, in March of 1530, they had been treating Crusaders from the back of the lines, the enemy was about to break through. They decided Crusaders are sort of breaking ranks, starting to run. They had this incredible charge, and their bravery kind of turned the tide of battle. So the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V signed the act of donation of Malta, giving the main island and several smaller ones to this sovereign order. And in return, the order was to make an annual payment of a single falcon given on All Saints Day. So mm. any of you who, uh, you know, the, the book, The Maltese Falcon, or, or maybe the Bogart movie, ah, that backstory ah. is from this Maltese Falcon payment here. So yeah, you, you're even more familiar than I am, I think, with some of this story here. Well, I don't know. I think I'm familiar with what came next in the 16th century, which is the the... the the, the context to anybody who's ever been to Malta, you get the story of the Great Siege in the 1650s when the Ottoman Empire almost, within a whisker, almost took Malta back from the knights. Basically, the knights were acting as the garrison and the defenders of the, of the island of Malta. So the idea of the knights being present in the, med- in the middle of the Mediterranean and having this joint kind of defensive and pastoral mission would have been a big part of how I think I think of them being connected to somebody like Stephen Maturin with the idea of care and also with kind of geopolitics. So the, the, the Knights, considering that most people's idea of the Crusades is that we're, they were way back in the first few centuries of that particular millennium, the Crusades were still having their impact in the 17th century in the existence of the Knights of Malta. And, and, and here we are today with them just about still in, in what you might call Christian hands. Yeah. Well, and, and Stephen, you know, you mentioned the connection to Stephen and, and I kept thinking about him as kind of this fighting medico, you know, yeah. especially, you know, going back in the Knights history in 1798, they actually left Malta. They left Malta because Napoleon was sailing by on his way to Egypt and told the the head of the order that he just wanted to dock there to resupply his ships. And they're, you know, they're good Christians. They give comfort, hospitality. So they let them on shore and <laughs> Napoleon, you know, uh, defeated them because they, you know, they thought he was coming in peace. Um, so I can't help but think that some people in their hearts have it in for Napoleon in the nights. And certainly Stephen Matron does as, as a knight yeah. himself. <laughs> yeah. So, and it, as you say, Ian, uh, the orders still continue in slightly different forms throughout the world today. Um, they're active even in Ukraine as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And the, the connection to this Sierra Leone scheme is interesting as well. You can you can dig into this. It's another one of these wonderful Patrick O'Brien Easter eggs. Plans were formed beginning, I think, in the 1780s to resettle poor blacks and their white spouses and also other poor people looking to resettle. This included many uh, black people from what is today the US and Canada, some freed slaves, some people who've been loyal to the British crown during the War of Independence, merchant mariners, domestic servants. Anybody who was looking for a new start on their own territory 
albeit as kind of recolonists uh, in Sierra Leone. And there were lots of single black men among this group, but there were uh, at least 18 black women married to white men and vice versa, some white women married, married to black men. And uh, they made this settlement. There was Sierra Leone, there was Granville Town, Freetown, the, the, the now capital of Sierra Leone, included lots of former slaves from the American South, as well as from Canada and Jamaica and a bunch of other places. So we're going to hear more, I think, about slavery and especially about slavery and the situation in West Africa coming up very soon, uh, maybe even as soon as the next book. Nice, nice. Well, back to Stephen and General Hurtado. They had gone, he reports to Blaine, they'd gone hunting and and O'Brien writes, you know, and, and this is Stephen writing as well. These expeditions are called hunting and on feast days, the more athletic citizens urged their horses about the stony deserts in search of a more or less fabulous creature said to resemble a hare, but they end up blazing away at the very few things that move, usually a dingy, inedible passerine, which I take to be a dwarfish subspecies of Sternus horridus. Huh. Any, any idea whether that's even close? Well, it's it, it's a good question. I kind of look at this thinking he's just making up a Latin name for fun, but right. dig into a little bit and... <laughs> And and guess what? There's a grain of truth. Sternus is the Latin for the genus of starlings, the pesky birds that roost in buildings at night. At least they do in England. Uh, we don't think there are any that have horridus in their names. The common starling is called Sternus vulgaris, which also sounds like it's a kind of starling that nobody really wants to love. So maybe O'Brien is 50% right and 50% having some fun with us. The reference only crops up in this book. There are though other animals in the animal kingdom with horridus in their in their name after the genus for example there's a timber rattlesnake the dinosaur triceratops and of course as as all of you kids will know the love interest for michelangelo in the teenage mutant ninja turtles comics also has the name horridus as well and there's there's, there's another little aeneid reference here as well isn't there there is, you know, I, I love this. And Karen, if, if you're listening here, I'm sorry that, you know, we kind of found this last minute. So I, I should have reached out to you. I turned instead to a Harvard 1829 interlinear translation of the first book of Virgil's work. And this line that uses hardest as dreadful, it talks about Julius Caesar putting an end to war, about the laws that come uh, into effect. Uh, that close the dreadful, horridous gates of war with iron and strained bolts. Impious, ah, impious, we've heard that already again in this chapter. Mm. Impious fury sitting upon cruel arms and bound with a hundred brazen knots behind his back shall roar horrible with bloody mouth. So, you know, eh, very interesting. And, yeah, and Ian, yeah. I, you know, I loved, you know, ch- you chasing down these, you know, these Latin names for the starlings. Interestingly, there's only two kinds of starlings. There's this, the vulgar, the common one. And the other one, Sternus unicolor, which is a name meaning spotless. The common name is a spotless starling. Stick a pin huh. in spotless. Oh, interesting. Well, we're getting all of this, all of this great stuff to dig into, and we're still only partway through Stephen's letter to Sir Joseph, which we're just recapitulating at the beginning of the chapter here. Carrying on with the news that Stephen's transmitting to, to Blaine, he says, there's good news. Uh, I've collected three beetles for you. 
and he expresses surprise, kind of cynical surprise, that these creatures could scrape a living from the desolation they traveled over. So he's already pointing out to us that the high ground and the the interior of Peru is a pretty barren, pretty dry and cold and forbidding place. He does say, though, that General Hurtado had shot a singularly beautiful turn, the Sterna Inca, Inca with a Y, and that Stephen saw this as an excellent omen. And Mike, we, we look again for a reference to the Latin name thinking O'Brien's oh, making it up, but no, this one seems to be a real bird. Um, there's a reference to this in the 1875 ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which sounds like so likely a book that will be on Patrick O'Brien's shelf that you can hardly believe it. Deep in an article about Peru, there's this reference to Stoner Inca. And also, by the way, to Ameris Inca in an article about South American weevils. So um, maybe O'Brien couldn't resist taking us back over some of the territory that he'd found in his browsing through these really old books here. Well, I, th- I think... And you're right. I think we're now at the heart of some of Stephen's optimism. We were wondering about earlier. O'Brien writes, a good omen is always welcome. Yet, if it were not presumptuous, says Stephen, I should feel inclined to say that there is comparatively little doubt about the outcome of these conversations. Three of the high ecclesiastics and four governors being already wholly committed to us, together with those for whom they speak, while the officers in command of the regiments that must be moved are tolerably venal men, and we have ample funds at hand. Yeah. You know, uh, Stephen tells him that there's a preliminary meeting on Wednesday to decide whether Castro should be included or not, this guy that's kind of operating the, now the local go-between with the viceroy here, You know whether he should be invited to that main conference on Friday. And meanwhile, Castro is being discreetly sounded out at the empty palace. Another stroke of luck, Stephen writes, that the viceroy is 10 days' journey away took kind of his all his military household trying to quell a disturbance in northern Peru. So, you know, Stephen is almost uncharacteristically giddy with enthusiasm here, and not only in himself, and we'll hear more about this, but in his dashing this note off to Sir Joseph here. Yeah, and he's persisting with the post-rationalizing, self-justifying tone. Uh, he acknowledges in the letter to Sir Joseph that it might have been wiser to start in Chile because the Vicar General has a close kinsman there, with the Viceroy having alienated much of the military and many of the Creoles, that's to say people descended from Spanish or European settlers, uh, and now being gone, if, if they can take advantage of the time, if they can act quickly with the smooth movement of these troops, they may have a fait accompli in terms of the, the transfer of power by the time the Viceroy returns. Fortunately, right, Stephen, this General Hurtado isn't the typical Latin manana take your time kind of person he has what Stephen calls an unusual sense of the passing hour and also the most capable chief of staff in the spanish service and Stephen wraps up the letter saying he's sorry the post is leaving to travel across the mountains to the atlantic coast before all these events are going to have transpired he meanwhile asks sir joseph to send a half sheet down to diana in hampshire and in this half sheet he's sending love to diana and to bridget and uh, reassuring via diana uh, Nathaniel Martin's wife, because he now thinks that this letter will beat Nathaniel Martin home by uh, by a couple of months and says, don't worry, he's coming and she's going to see him much restored. Now, also in this nice quick letter to Diana, he's describing the weather. He describes the terrain. He's clearly got his eye on the natural philosophic side of this trip. And we'll we'll talk about where that comes from and why it's a problem later on. He's talking about the uh, the lack of animal and vegetable life along the coast. 
his joy at seeing condors flying, the mouse species he's seen, and he's about to head off out into the moderately high ground on a mule. And he has this thought as he wraps up this quick note to Diana about Diana herself, this wife with all this fierce spirit, and the daughter that he's not seen yet and who might be walking and even talking by now. Wow. You know, this boy, it really gave me pause. I just I just can't imagine, you know, having had a child born and it's years yeah. later and you still have yeah. not set eyes on them. I'm sure not at all unusual for the Navy at the time, but uh, wow. Well, Stephen gives the mail to Guyungus. You know, he's, he's written off these letters. He really quickly reviews the directions again, you know, heading up to the mountains. And and Guyungus is saying, you know, yeah, you better get out of here. <laughs> you know, I, I really want you to make it there before nightfall. And you're now three hours late and you're traveling into a cool wind blowing right in your face. And, and O'Brien seems to put these little reminders of Jack's plight in here. And this sounded like one of them. Here you are going into a cruel wind blowing right in your face here. Well, luckily, we know how Stephen's about as good as I am with directions sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but his mule, after the first few turns and, and heading out this particular city gate, knows exactly where it's going. And, and Stephen starts to observe a little bit of the nature, as you were saying, Ian. But O'Brien tells us that his mind is completely taken up by his good fortune and the way this scheme has all come together. And he, he keeps going over all the coordinated moves in his mind, the military moves, political moves, administrative moves, how they're going to rapidly dispatch guns to guard three essential bridges. And all this thing seems so simple that his heart is beating so loud he can't hear it. But then hmm. he remembers just a little bit in his past dealings with Spanish military men dealing with Spanish co-conspirators and how a simple set of sequenced moves fell into hopeless chaos, O'Brien writes, for want of a sense of time, for want of common efficiency, or because of hidden jealousies. Hmm. Now he's, he's got just a little bit of introspection. He wishes he hadn't been so confident and presumptuous in writing to Blaine. You know, O'Brien writes, from very early times, Men had believed that it was unwise, even impious, ah, there's that word again, to tempt mm -hmm. fate. The ancient generations were not to be despised. The confident system of his youth, universal reform, universal changes, universal happiness and freedom had ended in something very like universal tyranny and oppression. The ancient generations were not to be despised. Yeah. He remembers that seamen think Friday is unlucky and that philosophers have thought that all days of the week could be happy if only enlightened laws were applied. And he wishes to himself that the main conference had not been set for a Friday and then blushes at his momentary weakness. And uh, Mike, just for a second there in this chapter, which is all about Stephen, my brain flicks back to Jack Aubrey. This is the kind of sort of self-protecting superstition that Jack Aubrey would absolutely agree with and say, yeah, damn right, you should touch a belaying pin here. <sighs> so having written in fairly glowing positive terms in the note to Sir Joseph, Stephen's beginning to think again about General Hurtado. What is it he likes about them? He notices that General Hurtado is a little bit vain, a little bit like the Catalan officer that we had on Grimm's home a few books ago, likes being fine, likes wearing the stars of his orders, traces his pedigree all the way back to his maternal grandmother, to uh, Wilfred de Shaggy, who we'll come to in a second. And he's 
more proud even of his pedigree than he is of his victories on the battlefield. Even so, Stephen likes him because he's rational, he's got an acute mind, he's a good organiser and an effective ally. His abilities, says Stephen, his known honesty, his high reputation in the army and his influence throughout Peru have made him the most valuable friend that could be found. So, once again, we're feeling pretty confident. Now, Mike, I, I love this reference to Wilfred the Shaggy. I, I, I think I'm right in saying we can't find very much about him, except that he really was a Count of Barcelona uh, in the 9th century, from 878 until his death in 897. A medieval knight who united Catalan territories, fought against the Moors, and might be seen as the founder or the creator of an independent Catalan nation. Uh, Mike, my two thoughts that were here. But Wilfred the Shaggy sounds like somebody out of Game of Thrones. You know? <laughs> A lot of Shaggies on Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. Shaggy by name, Shaggy by nature. But then I thought, no, Game, Game of Thrones can't be a contemporary reference because O'Brien was dead before that came along. There's another Shaggy character that might have been exactly right. That's Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Okay, so all you kids of the 70s and 80s will remember Scooby-Doo. The Scooby-Doo cartoons appeared in 1969. So the run of Scooby-Doo is exactly contemporary with O'Brien writing the Aubrey Matron series. And now here we have a reference to Shaggy. I don't think that can possibly be a coincidence, Mike. No, no, no. I love that. I love that. And and Scooby-Doo is is nowhere near as fantastic as some of the mythical tales in Catalan about Wilfred the, the Harry, as, as I think I more often see him too. But but you're right. Facts, mm, we're a little we're a little low in facts. But Scooby-Doo, we know Scooby-Doo. That's true, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Stephen wouldn't have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those pesky kids. <laughs> That's right. You know, Stephen passes many milestones on the road and many crosses that are kind of reminding passersby of all those who've died there by earthquake, by murder, and by accident there. A little foreboding here. You know, the mule turns off into some trees and the two of them get a drink there by the stream. Stephen wants a little wine and cheese, and, and he's sitting there kind of reminiscing about the little girl's apology the day after mass and, and the stories that they told acting Lieutenant Wilkins about what they'd seen that day. And as, as he's kind of reminiscing in his mind about this, the mule leans over his shoulder and starts taking a bite out of Stephen's bread loaf here. And you know, Stephen starts talking about how the mule's gentleness and kindness makes Stephen think even more more highly of his owner, the mule's owner, that's the Vicar General O'Higgins. And oh. the mule's name is Joselito. And and I couldn't help, you know, I, I thought, wait a minute, we had early first book, Joselito's Coffee House. Yeah. We get back to the Ionian mission. They're back there and they have a pint of sherry at Joselito's for old time's sake. In the Wine Dark Sea, we've also already had Joselito's Warehouse in Callao. So, you know, I, I couldn't help but think, gosh, I wonder, you know, maybe this is one of O'Brien's go-to names. He's certainly got lots of English go-to names, but, yeah. and, and maybe this is just common, but it seemed fun and interesting, but I couldn't find anything. I know, Ian, you, you looked as well, biographies and such. No, no, we looked through the biography. Does he know anybody called Joselito? I wondered if there might be a connection with Picasso, but I can't find any connection with anybody in Picasso's world who was called Joselito. So like you say, it just seems to be one of his go-to um, Spanish or Latin first names. Right. So listeners, if you know something about O'Brien and Joselito, please let us know. Yeah, we'd love to hear. 
So Stephen's riding again, and with the wind far more directly in their faces, he and Hosolito are climbing up this road. There are very tall, many-branched cactuses around them. O'Brien tells us that Stephen had never ridden in a strange country, paying so little attention to his surroundings because he's been focused so much on the, the revolution that he's busy trying to foment here. Stephen's thinking that this is the first time that so much depends on his success, and it's also the first time that the crisis and the decision-making associated with the crisis are moving towards him with such speed, and maybe this is why his heart is pounding a little bit. He's so focused on what's coming next that he doesn't see the two barefoot friars who are walking towards him. And by the way, the, the mule's been pointing ears at these friars for a quarter of a mile, and Stephen hadn't noticed. They exchange greetings, and... Stephen just seemed to be in this really kind of distracted state. He's not really aware of the world around him. Mike makes us wonder, I think, a little bit what else he might be missing. And certainly as a reader, I'm sitting there going, Stephen, there's all this stuff going on. Duturis, Ashura, and Kayao, there are all these uncertainties about all these Spanish dignitaries, and you're going, it's okay. General Hurtado is a good guy, and we have money, and it's all going to be okay. And meanwhile, I'm going up in the mountains. I'm sitting here wondering, you know... Why is he up in the mountains when he could be back in town or back in contact with his political alloys uh, trying to fix the situation here? To begin with, as I was reading this, I thought that, you know, O'Brien was just indulging himself or indulging Stephen in a bit of National Geographic stuff for no good reason. And I got a bit kind of frustrated with it. But maybe there's something else going on here. What do you think, Mike? Well, I think you're really on to something here. I mean, on this particular trip, he's kind of going to this first Wednesday meeting. But in fact, as we go through this chapter, it continues on, even in between the meetings, as we'll get to. He just wanders off into nature. And when he's in nature, as you say it, you know, something's just not right with Stephen. When he's in the midst of this nature that he's been dying to see, he's paying no attention to it. This is a distracted Stephen. This is, you know, an unusually ebullient Stephen, not anxious in kind of that quiet, calculating, rational, not hitting into his reptilian mind, not the, you know, the, the agent making these calculated moves. But as you say, just like, oh, first impressions, great guy. Ooh, look at the omens. Ooh, good luck. Ooh, superstitious Friday. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what it is about Stephen throughout this chapter. You know, perhaps, again, we're back to O'Brien signaling, you know, it's we're also kind of overcoming ourselves, not just what's going on around us. But is it maybe his return to the coca leaves? Later, we'll see that he thinks he's invincible to the weather as long as he's got a little coke in him. Maybe it's his, you know, all these concerns about Diana and Bridget. I'm just struck by how unbelievably optimistic, as you said, he was with the letter to Blaine. Again, you know, paying this no attention all these looming thoughts that we'll continue to see throughout the chapter about, uh-oh, what about this? Uh-oh, this could be a real problem. Uh-oh, that he just blows off, brushes off people who kind of say, well, you know, isn't this a different way of looking at it? No, no, no. We've got this all covered. And as he continues to turn into superstitious stuff, keep following that, you know, O'Brien just seems to be layering this chapter with subtle hints that Stephen is just a little bit off here. Yeah, he's, he's not at his best. And I'm worried as a reader and, and being, you know, Team Stephen, as we all are, that you think, well, what's going to come next? Yeah, absolutely. So the climb continues. They're going higher and higher up into the plateau here. There's a cold wind with really great force. Stephen 
turns into a slightly less exposed hollow. He's up at 5,000 feet, a mile high. He's way, way up high and gives his other loaf of bread to the mule, which is a very Stephen thing to do. And anxiety and maybe also the coca leaves have subdued Stephen's appetite. So he's not wanting to eat the, the bread. And he puts on this poncho. And this is described to us as if we don't know what a poncho is. And maybe this was clearly a new thing to Stephen. And he sees, as he starts out again after the break, that the sun is just two hours away from the horizon and the end of the day is coming and he's still got to make his way to wherever it is that he's going to meet these dignitaries. Below him, ahead on the road, there's a large party of horsemen riding for one of the monasteries that lie in the mountains far ahead. And these are places apparently often frequented by soldiers who are on retreat. They climb up, they climb occasionally down, carrying on mile after mile, and by now the sun is setting. And it's, it's beautifully poetically described by O'Brien, as, as the sun and the sky often are. talks about a band of brilliant red rock set against the grey rock in the sunlit uh, environment here, and there's darkness above. The air's getting thinner, the mule's breathing deeply, they go past a man frustrated with his lame horse, and coming up from a valley, they see an even higher range yet before them. Stephen starts to worry about them getting benighted, getting kind of stuck there for the night. And after another half an hour, with Rosalito grunting as he strides, they cross a new ridge and there's a parting of the path and they have to choose which path to go to to one of these two monasteries. Stephen's very glad that Rosalito says we're going along the right path. That means he's going towards the Benedictine house rather than left towards the Dominicans. He doesn't think he's quite ready for the austerity of the Dominicans. And spoiled by his long time at sea, Stephen's looking forward to supper and a glass of wine and warm bed. And this little extra bit of energy uh, on Stephen's part is, is picked up by Rosalito and uh, off they go with a little bit of renewed energy. Yeah, I, I love this, you know, because I think I think I'm, I'm like you, you know, like not only is Stephen worried about getting benighted, I'm a little worried because we keep getting this, okay, the sun's lower, it's dark out, it's getting colder, the wind's harder. Yeah. And, and they arrive at the convent right at twilight. So they've made it here. And, and from the distance, Stephen can make out that some solitary figure is pacing outside the gates. Doesn't know who it is, but the mule does and runs now. This strolling roll runs to go see him. It's his owner, Father O'Higgins, the vicar general. And O'Brien writes, and I just love this because I see this every day with my bride and her horses, Father O'Higgins particularly Irish clerical face, humorless and stern, changed to a look of simple pleasure, much of which remained when he turned to Stephen. So he's looking at this mule and he's just so in love and he's so happy. And, oh. and even some of it carries over <laughs> as he turns to Stephen and kind of asks him, how's your trip? And, and Stephen, I think, is, is also warmed by watching this. And, and he says, you know, if, if he hadn't been so fresh from the sea and unused to the unyielding ground, it really wouldn't have seemed like so much of a trip at all, especially with so grand and high-stepping a mule as Hasselito. God bless him. Yeah. God bless him, says Father O'Higgins, patting the mule's withers. Uh, and Stephen continues on, yet the wind makes me anxious for those at sea, we can take shelter where they cannot. Oh my gosh, here we are. Reminder, reminder, readers, Jack. Jack, I haven't told you what happened to Jack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, Father O'Higgins joined right in. Very true, very true, said the priest. And the wind howled over the convent wall. Poor souls, God be with them, says Father O'Higgins. Amen, says Stephen. 
and they walked in. So I'm, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, here's this again, this incredibly clear reminder of Jack's dire situation in the small boat with these surprises somewhere blown off the coast, you know, probably nowhere near the Franklin and the weather and the wind and everything is still bad. The sea is still bad. And and all of that peril seems to be heightened by these increased, you know, the, the last chapter and this chapter, increasingly more and more prayers for everybody, for the situations. And I want so badly for O'Brien to say, now let's switch and I'll tell you what's happening with Jack. But I don't know if he does that yet or not. Yeah. What's going to happen? And, uh, and maybe that Steve is getting higher and higher and more remote and more remote. But that, yes. That's just intensifying my desire to go, wait, 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 come, let's switch back. Let's switch back. It's a, it adds an, a kind of tension that I think is really, really great. Like, I wish it would be over, but it's really great tension. Right. Well, Mike, if, if, if we're all suffering from the tension and feeling the, the parched nature of the landscape around us, perhaps this is a good time to go and relieve the tension and grab a glass of something hydrating. So why don't we all take a short break? And Mike, you and I will be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you're all back up to hydration and you're managing your altitude sickness carefully. As well as welcome back from the break, we want to say welcome aboard. We have some new Patreons who've signed up with us recently. You are all very welcome and we really appreciate your support and thank you for joining Team Lovers Whole. We want to say hello to some new listeners as well because we're noticing there are more and more of you every week lately listening in. So if you're a new listener and you've already binged all the way up to episode 141, then good on you and, uh, and here's to many more still to come. So, Mike, let's get back into the chapter here. And having had wind and jeopardy and darkness, Stephen's safe. He's in the monastery here. He's been asleep and he's woken when the choir monks are still singing part of the monastery's compline, this very, very long night service normally sung before retiring for the night. There are strings of men in the darkness coming from both monasteries over a ridge and across a plateau to a large kind of summer house, usually used by people looking after sheep. They start this meeting in the summer house with a prayer chanted by an ancient prior who surprises Stephen, who didn't realize the group had managed to reconcile Franciscans and Dominicans in the quest for independence. That's quite something because these were two orders that saw themselves as pretty much rivals. There's a great deal of talk. Mike, you mentioned this earlier on. There's a great deal of talk for and against admitting Castro into the conspiracy. And Stephen's describing to us in the text that he's pretty checked out of this debate, doesn't really know enough about Castro to make a decision, doesn't really think that it matters very much, given the great armed forces that are otherwise about to be put in play. And General Hurtado finally speaks against bringing Castro on side. He says, there is no trusting a man who watches the cat so long and so closely to see which way it will jump. If we decide he will join us, if we do not, he will denounce us. And so the matter is settled. Um, and by the way, Mike, uh, General Hurtado kept referring to somebody called Jose Rivera. Uh, I, I couldn't find the name of anybody in the real world who had a name like that, except for the golfer, Jose Rivero. Um, how about you? 
No, no. Everybody I found in the real world was long after this and some beacon of treachery that, you know, you need to remember. <laughs> you don't want to bring some guy like this in. Now, no idea who he is. And the Patrick O'Brien Mustard book. Again, no idea who this guy is. So sorry. It, listeners, if you know, please let us know. Stephen's glad that they finally resolved this point and they can now go back to bed. So he's, you know, you've been there. He's gotten a little sleep. They have this midnight kind of past midnight meeting and, you know, they head back to the monasteries in the dark because the wind is just too strong for their lanterns. And in the morning, early morning now, Stephen wakes up. He sees his neighbors, the vicar general, uh, who, you know, is is not very taciturn generally and certainly in the morning. And Father Gomez, who is you know really friendly and talkative. And he says, you know, he's drinking this big uh, thing of mate. He says he knows he can't tempt Stephen away from his coffee with the mate, but he does offer him some dried apricots from Chile. Hmm. And then he says, you know, Stephen, I remember that you really wanted to see the high mountains and some of our great Inca buildings. Uh, I have a nephew that's coming this morning who's going to look at several of our llama stations, and he really has wanted to meet you and learn all about the birds of the Southern Ocean. And Gomez says that if the weather wasn't so bad, Stephen could actually go with him and see at least some of these mountains. And Stephen says, well, the weather's not that bad at all. And Father Gomez says, well, his nephew, Eduardo, would not think so. He says, and I quote here, he creeps up mountains through ice and snow. He is made of brass. And he tells Stephen all these, you know, the highest peaks of the Andes, which Eduardo has climbed numerous times. So here we go. We, you know, you had said about how Stephen, you know, here we are. It's you know, now Thursday. We're coming on the Friday meeting. What's Stephen going to do to make sure this plot works? And for now then, somewhat to my frustration, the answer is he's going to go naturalizing. And we get this another little piece of O'Brien filler to kind of spin your wheels and extend time a little bit. We get this friendly new secondary character, the nephew Eduardo. Stephen really takes to him. Eduardo is friendly, straightforward. He's very unaffected, rather like the young are. But he also has, maybe beyond his years, a deep interest in living things and a deep knowledge of the wildlife in and around his country here. And he combines the experience that he has with this directness and this modest manner and this simplicity, which Stephen thinks of as attributes of young people that disappear with age. And he's also uh, drawn to the way that Eduardo speaks Spanish. And we get this comparison between the way uh, colonials and Bostonians in particular speak English with the way that people in the Spanish colonies in South America speak their Spanish. So as as they're sitting, chatting, waiting to depart, and, and maybe they will and maybe they won't, um, Stephen takes a moment to tell Eduardo the natural history of albatrosses, which is something that Stephen knows all about. There's perhaps an opportunity for us to talk some more about large birds later on in the chapter, but for now, Stephen wants to share his knowledge about albatrosses. In return, Eduardo tells Stephen all about the guajaro, or guacharo, I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, a bird found in a vast cavern in the Andes. And this is a real unfamiliar turn in natural history. There's something about these birds that Stephen is really astounded to learn. And he asks about their eggs. And meanwhile, they're interrupted by a lay brother who's bringing a card from a man who wants to see Stephen. But before we hear about what's on the card, Mike, tell, tell us about these birds, these guacharos. Yeah, these these are fascinating birds. Um, you know, they're, they're called the oil birds, the Latin name uh, calls them the fat birds, if you translate the fat birds of the carapi. 
so you know it's it's you know this thing about fat and this the Spanish nickname the one that Eduardo's using means one who whines or laments and that comes from this bird's raspy wails. Well, the fascinating thing is Ed, Eduardo said you know he found them in this cave. They live primarily in caves now. If we kind of fast forward to today, we've now kind of hooked them up and used GPS to geolocate them and stuff like that. And we now know that non-breeding birds actually live in trees or outside ledges more days than they live in caves. But the breeding birds are all in these big colonies in caves and they're in the darkness all day long. And they use echolocation to navigate like bats, you know, kind of flying out at night and feeding exclusively on fruit. They're the only bird that, you know, flies out at night, eats fruit. There is one other that's a flightless nighttime fruit eater. Now, they're called oil birds because, as Eduardo tells in his story, indigenous people used to collect these fat young birds and render them all down for oil, for lighting and cooking. Interestingly... You know, they're first described to kind of the European world by Humboldt. We know Humboldt here in 1817. So, boom, this is perfect. You can almost see O'Brien reading Humboldt's notes and going, oh, here we go here. And I couldn't help but think about that old English medical text and O'Brien's homeopathy metaphor kind of earlier and wondering if that example from that text, the oily, stormy petrol and somehow this oil bird from Humboldt's writing sort of come together in, in this kind of close connection in this book here. But these birds, fascinating, fascinating to look at, fascinating to listen to. Their echolocation is actually audible to humans, mm. and along with this raspy wailing and everything else. So maybe we stick some social media links out with these guys. Yeah, but relish the sound of the call of the oil bird. Huh. Right. Huh. Meanwhile... Uh, Stephen recognizes in this card the code name that he'd agreed on to identify Gayongos. Doesn't see him amongst the men who are out there cooling his horses, um, and he recognizes then a man in military uniform with a cavalry mustache and a slouch hat. And this is clearly Gayongos in disguise. And Stephen seems to kind of roll his eyes a little bit at how lame this costume is, but it does seem to be effective. Gayongos tells Stephen that a man called Dutour, yes, him, has reached Lima from Callao. And is telling everyone in Lima, in the capital, that he, Dutoro, had been ill-treated, robbed. He'd been kept a prisoner aboard the Surprise. The Surprise is not a privateer. She's a king's ship. And, dum-dum-dum, Stephen, he has said in public, is probably a British agent. Which is the one thing that Stephen's been trying to avoid at every turn in this whole great long story. Dutour had managed to latch onto the members of the French mission and loudly accosted them in public, runs around talking volubly about this idea of an ideal republic, saying that he's an American and that he was in a privateer flying American colors. And Mike, this is the point at which my head goes into my hands and I'm thinking, oh, all of the things that Stephen has been hoping or ignoring have, have, have come to pass and he's not there and he's thousands of miles away. Stephen wonders just as we did last chapter, how it could have been that Dutora got away and thinks that he probably knows and he's probably got the same logic in his brain as Jack has about how this escape came to pass. And as Stephen tells Gaiongos, it's very vexing. It might have been disastrous earlier, but, says Stephen, the French won't take Dutour seriously and nor will many other people. And even if they did, any complaint would have to be handled by the civil authorities and in the next 24 hours or so, there's going to be a military government. Guyonga says, well, what about the the Wednesday meeting 
and discovers that they had decided not to admit Castro. And we get a moment here of doubt because Garangos's face changes. He's not sure that this decision to exclude Castro was the right one and says, well, uh, maybe I should go and have uh, have this Dutour guy suppressed because he's clearly possibly having an influence here with Castro. No, says Stephen. Denounce him to the Inquisition. He is a most infernal heretic. Gayangos, however, says the text, was not given to merriment and there was no answering smile on his face as he set off. <laughs> now, I, I wonder about the smile. Maybe Stephen Maturin is secretly a Monty Python fan here. Maybe Stephen is pointing out at this stage to, uh, to detour and everybody else. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. And seriously, for a minute, I think that Stephen suspects that the Inquisition is likely to do for Dutour. Maybe, though, the smile is also part of his uncharacteristically kind of sanguine mood and part of this slightly, I don't know, out-of-body nature that we've got for Stephen right now. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Ian. I mean, you know, everything we know about Stephen is, you know, he only is going to harm somebody in self-defense. He takes this medical thing so seriously. And for him to be smiling, talking about turning Dutard over to the Inquisition, I think you're right. Another key item that says Stephen is not completely himself at the moment here. No, correct. Well, Stephen comes back into Eduardo and Eduardo just finishes his sentence. You know, Eduardo had been telling, you know, answering Stephen's question about the birds and their eggs and their nest. And, and he had told Stephen that the birds' eggs are white and unshining with no sharp end. And had said their nest is made of, when they were interrupted, when Stephen returns, he says, mud. The nest is made of mud. And, you know, kind of <laughs> picks right up. And Stephen is there preparing a big ball of coca leaves for himself and hands his bag over to Eduardo, who, who you know, notes that, hey, the wind is dropping a little bit here. Now, just a quick, interesting point. I said we've learned a lot more about these birds, you know, more recently here. The nests are not made of mud. Actually, their eggs are glossy, not unshiny. Their eggs actually do have a, a distinctly pointed smaller end. And the nests are made of a heap of droppings. So they're in this big cave, these breeding birds, with all these droppings. Well, it's, you know, big piles of droppings that form their nests, which get pretty yeah. nasty. So it's hard to tell early on shining or not shining because they're pretty much brown when you find them here. But, you know, again, these birds, so fascinating. Venezuela's first national monument was the big oil bird cave that has a national park now surrounding it. And, and Colombia also has a national park that really features these birds here. So yeah, a little social media for us. Sorry, I get carried away here. <laughs> Not at all. So Stephen, meanwhile, hopes that Eduardo's journey to the llama farm, llama farm, that sounds like it ought to rhyme, um, hopes that this journey isn't going to be too arduous. And uh, Eduardo says, well, you know, a, a blow like this on the side of the mountain at this time of year is almost unheard of. So St Stephen's extending out into the high ground in weather that is unseasonal, verging on unheard of. And I'm, again, I think the, the drumbeat of jeopardy is pounding for us here. Eduardo hopes that Stephen will come with him, at least to the first, the main llama station. 
and Stephen is very sanguine about this. Again, Mike, he's on his own little cloud of self-belief here. Fortified by coca leaves, he said, I should have no hesitation in setting out within the next quarter of an hour. And his conversation turns next to the llamas. He says, I don't know very much about them. There are two. There are two wild kinds. There's the vicuña, a little orange creature with a long silky fleece that lives high up close to the snow. And there's the guanaco that is prey for the puma. Um, the guanaco is more easily tamed and is the ancestor for the llama, which is bred for riding and carrying burdens, and for the alpaca, which is a smaller animal kept at higher altitudes for wool. And Eduardo notes that both of them give good meat, but he's not willing to say that it's as good as mutton. And uh, we get this little mention here that he doesn't seem very happy with the idea of sheep. And we turn to the idea that as a purebred Inca, Eduardo regards sheep and the, the mutton meat that comes from them as an unwelcome Spanish introduction. And as they're riding later on through a herd of sheep on their journey, this, this gets reinforced for us as well. Eduardo is not impressed by the idea of sheep. Eduardo's gaiety really only comes back when he's describing a goose with no Latin name and says he wants to tell Stephen about other names besides, but he only knows their names in the Quechua language. And this language and the kind of naming of animals, is that a real thing, Mike? It really is. O'Brien's completely correct. The Andean goose, who Eduardo is is describing in Quechua, was not described for the West until 1838. Wow. And it's interestingly largely untouched by people because it lives so remotely, except for dumb, dumb, dumb sheep farmers who see them as competition for their flocks. So uh-huh, you know, it's okay. this great kind of metaphor for this colonial overlords and you know the 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 pure country that we had before you and the, how people get divided over stuff here so fascinating wow well they continue going through this beautiful country and then we hear Eduardo say sheep again and then they had to go up this very steep path that Eduardo says is a shortcut to their llama farm here and Stephen it's so steep that Stephen's really slowed down behind Eduardo's elastic step and, and he can't keep up and this is the first time Stephen thinks that he's experienced where a younger person continues to kind of very honorably and patiently stop and wait for him, pretend to kind of blow his nose and cough to let Stephen catch up. But what Stephen really regrets is that he can't hear all these stories Eduardo's telling about all the plants and birds and lizard descriptions of what they're passing and what's there in the country. So Stephen's like, I'm missing that. Not to mention all these fascinating beetles are passing by them and he can't stop and grab any of them for Sir Joseph Blaine. So all of a sudden we have kind of in, in a way, a heartbeat back to the, you know, Stephen we know and love, uh, but also caught up in scrambling up those mountains when we wish he'd be the intelligence agent, Stephen, that we, you know, that we know and love. Uh, right. I, I think we have intelligence agent Stephen's real brain and conscience bubbling back to the surface here because he starts to reflect on what's going on. And the text says, although his words to Gayongos had been perfectly sound, the wretched detour would thrust his way up into some level of Stephen's mind just below full consciousness, an unreasonable, haunting anxiety. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, more than just haunting, mate, you should be thinking about this full time. Uh, the text goes on, physical exertions helped. The coca leaves had their usual charming effect, but it was not until a great gust struck him that he realized they were at the top and the anxiety gave way to a lively interest in the present. 
So we've we've lost Stephen's intelligence brain back to the real world of of the uh, of nature here. So never mind. They have arrived at their destination at the Llama Station, and Stephen's really amazed to see the reaction of the Indians. The Indians who are normally quite uh, unhappy and withdrawn, having this great enthusiastic greeting for Eduardo. They're laughing away, and Eduardo speaks to them in this language Quichua, and having explained that most of them don't know Spanish, and that those who did prefer to conceal their knowledge. We kind of learn a little bit again about how the, the the colonial past is resented here by the local people. Eduardo takes Stephen to see a guanaco, one of these native animals in the field, one that had been caught young and tamed. And Stephen admires this. This is a very fine animal. Eduardo points out that their best llama has a name that means spotless snow. There you go. That we had a reference earlier on to spotless, so we can we can take the pin away again. So this animal called Spotless Snow is coming up the path. And Stephen's delighted to make his acquaintance an even finer animal, he says. And just as he turns his attention to the llama, the guanaco, not keen to be slighted, strikes Stephen below his shoulder blades and knocks him on his face. And it's, it's a funny little bit of physical slapstick, almost comedy for Stephen. And he's very keen to brush it off. He says he's no problem. He says, let us go and ask the llama how he does. The llama stood his ground as they approached, eyeing Stephen with much the same look as the guanaco, and when he was well within range, spat in his face. The aim was perfect, the saliva extraordinarily copious. (laughs) Well, after having been knocked down, now spat in the face, there's another outcry and hullabaloo, but Stephen notices that really only Eduardo seems deeply moved by the fact. In fact, he sees two Indian children are kind of twisting themselves double with delight here. And Eduardo says that, you know, they do that sometimes to people who vex them and sometimes to white men. Mm. But, you know, he thinks to himself he's been talking to Stephen for so long he'd forgotten his color. And so, Ian, for me now, I'm thinking, okay, all the sheep stories now the llama, we're thinking about back to the religious sex on the ships. We're thinking about people from different countries. You know, Brian's been pulling this theme all through this book here about people who are not like us and all, all the prejudices that kind of seep right down to our animals, as well as, you know, this continuing thing, as you mentioned, about the colonizers and the colonized here. Well, Stephen, I think, is trying to kind of turn the situation around a little bit. And he asks for some mate, that most refreshing drink. You know, Father Gomez saying, I know I'll never convince you to drink this. And now Stephen's saying, oh, please, can I have some? You know, I think trying to lighten the mood. And Eduardo starts to describe all the other places he'd hoped to take Stephen, but notes it, it is getting a little late. And Stephen says, yeah, I really need to get back to the convent on time. Thank goodness, Stephen, you're thinking a little bit. Uh, And as they're going down, he's noticing that Eduardo is just getting kind of sadder and sadder as they lose height, as they come down, Eduardo's spirits come down. And to divert his mind, Stephen starts chatting about how pleased he was to see Eduardo's people so happy and gay that, you know, Stephen tells him he'd formed a false notion, supposing them to be kind of a morose people. And here comes, boom, hammering the nail in about this. O'Brien writes, a people that has had its ancient laws and customs taken from it 
whose language and history count for nothing and whose temples have been sacked and thrown down is apt to be morose, replied Eduardo, then recollecting himself, he says, now, I I do not say that that's the state of affairs in Peru, and it would be the grossest heresy to deny the benefits of the true religion. I say this (laughs) only that, ah, you know, it's what some of the more obstinate Indians who may secretly practice the old sacrifices believe. And, and then he stops and says, pray, do not move in this very low, urgent voice, nodding towards the far side of the valley. You know, his attention's been caught by something here. Wow. And uh, his little, um, little bit of uh, self-confessed heresy there gets cut off as our attention goes along with Stevens to see these condors. We've had Stephen's appetite already to see the condors. We've had the mention of the albatrosses, and now we have them in sight. And it's for Stephen, for the naturalist part of Stephen, it's a really great moment. The condors are circling and rising, but not to any great height. Eduardo gets Stephen to focus his spyglass, and he sees that there's a puma, a wildcat, eating some sheep. And Eduardo laughs. He says, sheep getting eaten, that's fine with him. The condors, he says come in quite quickly after the kills. And we're going to hear in a second about how that's different from vultures. When the puma gets full and walks off, they come straight away down. The puma then rushes out at them, chases them away from what he thinks of as still his meal, eats a little, retires, and the condors immediately come back. Stephen says, our vultures are more circumspect. They will wait for hours, whereas these are indirectly. Lord, how they eat. I should not have missed this for the world. Thank you, my dear Eduardo, for showing me the puma, that noble beast. And Mike, I I suspect this is not a completely unplanned interruption. There's a juxtaposition here between the the attitudes of the oppressed, colonized Indian people in the previous paragraph and this little visual metaphor about pumas and condors here. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right again, especially following all this sheep incidents discussion and Eduardo's just clear statement about how they feel about being colonized. And, and you know, and I don't think Stephen would disagree. You know, we remember his conversation with Sam Panda at the beginning of this when they first got here about how Stephen feels about one country you know, sort of colonizing or dominating another, any country. Yeah. Mm. Well, riding back the rest of the way to the convent, there's this ongoing detailed discussion about the birds and the puma. And, you know, it, until they lose their voices shouting over the wind, they reach the monastery, they eat dinner and they retire. And then Stephen, the text tells us, you know, ate very little as a consequence of his coca leaves. And now also as a consequence, lays unsleeping. And the text says, regretting the untimely, though surely unimportant, detoured, but taking much pleasure in the rest. Uh, so it's like, okay, mm. again, it's just like right there. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's laying there and somehow his mind turns to Condorcet. And the text says, a very, very much larger man than detoured, but equally foolish in his regard for that silly villain Rousseau when his ear caught a footstep in the passage and he was wide awake when Sam came in holding a shaded candle. And Sam tells Stephen that Father O'Higgins would like a word with him. Wow. <laughs> now, can we just, just dig into Condorcet for a minute? His, his name is dropped in the text as if we're all suspect, expected to know, oh yeah, Condorcet, oh him. And we get a little bit of clue about who he is by this connection 
to Rousseau. And of course, we know how that connects to the family tree of Stephen's attitudes to philosophy and to Dutour and a bunch of other people. Marie-Jean-Antoine-Nicolas, Marquis de Condorcet. That's a bit of a mouthful. A French philosopher, mathematician, um, supporter of liberal economy, supporter of free and equal public instruction, constitutional government and equal rights for women and people of all races. So a French aristocrat, but with very liberal outlooks, had been said to embody the ideals of the Age of Enlightenment. And in that respect, he's been called the last witness to the, uh, the idea of the, the Enlightenment. Last because, I guess, um, he was part of the old regime and part of the, the old French culture before the revolution. He died in prison after a period of being in hiding from the French revolutionary authorities. And Stephen really only portrays for us the connection to Rousseau, but history is actually a, uh, seems to be a bit kinder to Condorcet. And actually, he's there's more about him than just being a Rousseau fan. And uh, the things that he was able to accomplish in time can be kind of separated from the thinking and the philosophy that he espoused. So, an interesting fella. Yeah, yeah, he really, really is. Some of his writings that came out, you know, that he wrote during prison, you know, and, and his wife published later kind of gave a little bit more insight in there. So he, you know, he's, he's some with Rousseau, but he breaks as well here. Yeah. Well, the vicar general tells Stephen that the clandestine French mission had been sought out by this noisy, talkative enthusiast who's resulted in discrediting the mission but has loudly asserted in all quarters that Stephen is a British agent here. And the Holy Office has taken him up for what he calls some shocking blasphemies in the style of Condorcet. So yeah. even, even the, the vicar is there. And, and Condorcet did write a book on the life of Voltaire in which he agreed with Voltaire's opposition to the church here. But O'Higgins says Castro is using all of this to ingratiate himself with the viceroy. And he's kind of incited mm. a mob to be crying heretical foreign gold. And they're standing outside the British consulate. And another crying the same thing is standing outside the house where the Frenchmen are staying. And he thinks that, you know, General Hurtado perhaps may have Castro handled by tomorrow, but they can't find the general anywhere. And, you know, he goes on to say Castro, while incapable of doing much good, is capable of doing a great deal of harm. And O'Brien writes, and this is the words of, of uh, Father O'Higgins, I think we were unwise in rejecting him. I yeah. tell you these things because if you share my weakness, you may wish to take your measures in the event of our being right. Wow. Mm. Well... Uh, it, it's all starting to crumble a bit before our eyes here. You know, Stephen thanks him for this input and says that Castro, as an unreliable man, may have come into possession of many names if he had, in fact, been invited to attend the meeting. So maybe it was still the smart thing to exclude him. However, returning to his cell with his pen and paper in his hand, he writes and reflects on the unsoundness of his words. At sunrise, and still not sleepy, Stephen folds up his papers and walks in to hear the Benedictus. So, before we had Compline, now we have the Benedictus, the blessing. And later on, many people arrive at these two monasteries. Some of them are members of their uh, Revolutionary League. Most of them are silent with anxious looks. There have been messages posted to tell General Hurtado about Castro so that he can reassure the meeting and take instant, decisive measures but he doesn't come. Mm. Guy Angus does come. 
and we know straight away from the description of Gyongus's face that this is all starting to look unfavorable. His old gray face destroyed. And in that way, he tells Stephen, the Vicar General, and Father Gomez, and Sam that Hurtado, extremely moved, had declared that with these cries of foreign gold abroad, repeated on every hand, in this atmosphere of corruption, he could not, as a man of honor, consider any further action at this moment. And there you go. All, all, all of the uh, the honor and the straight shooting, straight talking attributes uh, of Hurtado have bitten us in the behind now because he can't maintain his honor in the face of this suggestion of corruption. Oh, Mike. Well, Stephen's now kind of like, okay. Mm. And, and, and he's asking, you know, can Castro seize the surprise? And he's told that, you know, he can't. However, Stephen's warned that Castro can arrest Stephen on some pretext. And Father O'Higgins says, you know, you need to get out of here and head straight for Chile to my kinsman, Bernardino. And he gives Stephen a letter for his kinsman and says that Bernardino will take Stephen to Valparaiso, where Stephen can board his ship again. You know, it's not going to be safe here. You head out there. You know, we'll get word. Father Gomez says Eduardo will show Stephen the way. And then there's this curious line. O'Brien writes, you'll be in no danger with him. He added with a curious smile, this huh. is Father Gomez. And I'm wondering, yeah. what, what are you telling us, O'Brien? What are you telling us, Father Gomez? What? Oh, my gosh. So are you telling us that it would be a really, really dangerous trip, but that with that water, you'll be fine? Or is there something else? I don't know. This is this is just the beginning of, of a curious end to the chapter. It, it is a curious end to the chapter, there's a little bit of reassurance that we haven't handed out any of his gold yet. Guyango says only a few thousands of money has gone out. Apart from that, there's drafts on the provisional government, no actual gold. Stephen asks him to have the money ready in transferable form until he receives the word. He gives Sam, Father Panda, as we should call him, uh, a note for Jack saying to, to Sam that Captain Aubrey will explain these things far better than Stephen can. And the meeting breaks up and the chapter finishes with this text. They all shook hands. And in the doorway, Guyango said, I feel so much for your disappointment. Pray accept this parting gift. Silent tears, utterly astonishing on that grey dewlapped face, ran down as he handed Stephen an envelope. End of chapter eight. Ah, wow, Mike. A a long time this chapter to spend in Stephen's company, but a long time to learn that uh, uh, as part of us all knew all along, this mission has dropped to pieces here. But just like that, just because Dutour showed up, all of a sudden the, the the hope and the bubble of expectation is bursted here. It's really frustrating. Yeah. And and, 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 and as frustrating and as, as captivating as this chapter is, you know, I keep saying, what for the love of God is happening to Jack and the men yeah. on the boat for crying out loud? And then what is in this envelope that Guyungus just handed Stephen? Wait. And, you know, he's got these tears and he's so, and he hands him this envelope. I'm like, oh, Brian, you're killing me here. This is like a, a season ending cliffhanger. And, you know, I've got to, I, I know I just have to turn the page, but I really want it now here. Right. Yeah. And where's all this kind of mood music with Stephen taking us? He's anxious. We, we've had all of this um, background about distaste for foreigners and distaste for colonialism. We've had all of the, 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 the wild animal metaphors stacked up against Stephen here. 
animals not liking Stephen. That has not happened very often. Right. And also, meanwhile, by the way, the Cochrane scholars among you will be thinking, so now they're going to Valparaiso? Like, in the real world, that's where Cochrane is sitting waiting. It was always going to be Valparaiso. What have we been doing in Peru and Callao and Lima for so long? Come on, let's get with it. Yeah, and, and I can't imagine. I mean, we've had all this forewarning about this this pretty bad storm coming in. You know, hasn't been one like this seen on this side of the mountain before. And and aren't Eduardo and Stephen headed over that? And don't worry, you'll be in no danger with Eduardo. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of with Stephen heading into that because it's a long way to Valparaiso. It's a very oh, yeah. long way if we, if we, you know, go back to Canonade.net. There's got to be a lot of getting there to get there. And I'm kind of wondering, not only do we have that super confident letter to Blaine, but then, then we have this rapidly scribbled half sheet, you know, and I'm thinking, are Stephen's last words to his wife and his never seen daughter going to be talking about seven kinds of mice for crying out loud? Yeah. I have a little bit of a bad feeling about that. I wonder who in the world wanted us to get to South America so quickly. Oh, oh, oh. right. That was me. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a long, long, long drawn out case of be careful what you wish for. Right. Mike, the, 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 there's only way to figure all of this out. There's only one way I think that we can resolve all these questions. What do you say, my friend, next week to just a little more of the Wine Dark Sea and therefore just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Ian, I should like that of all things. <laughs> Instead to a Harvard interlinary, sorry, interlinear. There you go, Sam. I turned instead to a Harvard 1829 interlinear translation of the first book of Virgil's work.